Olivia. Hey, Kat. I'm so excited about this week because I get to introduce one of my favorite relatives to our listeners. He is my cousin, Charlie, and uh, also known as Dr. Charles Silberstein, a revered psychiatrist from Martha's Vineyard. But uh, if anyone happened to be at the Mopco Improv Theater a while back and hear a story time time show about my cousin, they will remember Charlie and I from an earlier era. So it's especially fun for me to have him on the podcast this week. And it's especially fun for someone who has heard that story to connect <laughs> to connect the voice and the person to to that story. For people who haven't heard the story, who are curious, um, if you email us, we will secretly tell you all about that. But we're not giving it away now. No. It's just a little juicy Easter egg goodie bag for you. What I will tell you is that Charlie and I have been wanting to get together and collaborate for a long time. As a psychiatrist, he's been writing articles called On My Mind with the help of his wife, Laura Roosevelt Silberstein about his lens on lots of things, what's going on in the world, his work. Um, and as we've been reading them through our lens of applied improvisation and the work that we do, we've been noticing all sorts of alignment and synergies. And we've been looking to get together and collaborate and work together for a while. And it's just never happened. Two busy people. We had this crazy idea that you had to be together in space to make that happen. How foolish we were. <laughs> and one of the gifts of this time is we realized we don't have to be. And we're starting by having a conversation uh, on the podcast about our work and how they aligned and different things. And Charles starts with uh, walking us through some of his thoughts in one of his recent articles that he wrote and some self-reflection that we thought was really juicy. Yes. Uh, you know, as, as we looked at the synergies, we could have spent, you know, entire podcast episodes <laughs> going through all of the different themes, but uh, specifically we, we got to kind of dig in about uh, conscious and unconscious bias and where we think we might be very conscious and might be more unconscious than we consciously think. <laughs> and uh, we talked about how uh, we know talked about therapy, how really it's, uh, you know, as we like to say it, it's maybe a storytelling activity is really what therapy is and paying attention to what are the narratives uh, in your life that you're making up, what are, what's true, what's not true, and uh, kind of putting a new lens on how we can take care of ourselves during this time. Yeah. See, aren't you excited? I told you it was going to be exciting. I'm excited. A quick note before we get into it, some of our uh, our self-care maybe shows at the beginning and taking care to to check our audio. So it's a little bit bumpy at the beginning, but stick with us. It evens out. Um, just know going into that, that it does um, level out. Yeah, put on some oh. earbuds or something and you'll be fine. All right. See you on the flip side, as the kids say. Huh? Can 
they still call you Charlie? Do people call you Charlie? Or is oh, it just Charles these days? It's, it's, okay. I think I'll start my story by telling you about something that I'm writing about in the column, uh, an experience I had that really um, changed the way I see myself and change the way I see my relationship with women, Ooh. see myself as a man. Well, don't let me stop you. That's just too compelling. Let's start there. Well, uh, I've been writing this column for about four years, and it covers all kinds of issues with regard to mental health. And for the last four years, my wife, who is a brilliant editor, has been working on my column with me. I write the column, and sometimes with ideas that she comes up with. And then I send it to her, and she corrects the punctuation and helps me restructure it and clarifies ideas and stops me from saying things that aren't so smart. And so the column is a much better column for her help. And when it comes up at a dinner party that I've written the column, usually I say, you know, I get a lot of help from Laura and she deserves a lot of credit. And as I'm doing that in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I better give Laura credit and and I know it will make her feel good, but I don't think I've ever fully acknowledged how much she's my writing partner. Yeah. So one night we were having dinner with some friends and our friends were talking about how great the column is. And I kind of drank in the accolade with great pleasure, never mentioning that I've got this writing partner. And the next day I was kind of rushing to get ready for work and she kind of nonchalantly said to me, you know, I think it's time for me to step down as your editor. You really are a great writer and there are editors of the paper who can help you as well as I can. And yeah. <laughs> and I thought, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I think I sounded probably a little bit more whiny than that. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, I, I'm working on this major piece and, and when I spend my creative energy working on your pieces, I'm spending less working on mine. And I, I'm a professional writer now, and I want to get credit for the work that I do. Yeah. And my first reaction was kind of this flush of panic. I'm losing my writing partner. And my next reaction was a kind of flush of embarrassment. My God, she's right. I haven't been acknowledging her. And she said, well, if you want to give me credit, that's a different thing. And I thought about it. And I thought about how I see myself. I see myself as an enlightened man and a, and a feminist. I think if I had to a group of people I'd like to hang out with out of a hat, it wouldn't be a bunch of typical American men. I'd much rather spend time with, with women or maybe a gay man or minority, but I, I don't think of myself as carrying a lot of mm. prejudice. And yet I came to realize that part of not giving her adequate credit was kind of what I'm trained to do as a man. Yeah. That I can't imagine doing the work that she did, does on my column without asking to be acknowledged. Mm. It's considerable. And somehow she and I both kind of accepted that that was the norm. And so I, as of my next column, 
I am adding her to my byline. So it will read Charles Silverstein with Laura Roosevelt. But it's no news that at least since the first agricultural revolution, yeah. 10,000 BC, women have played an equal role to men without getting the credit, power, and freedom that their contribution deserves. And as I um, thought about this, I thought about a dinner party that I had been at in um, the days before social and physical distancing. And there were about six other couples and everyone at the table was somebody very accomplished. And the topic turned to how women have been historically undervalued. And with the self-assurance of a man with a credential, I chimed in about a third of American women have been the victims of abuse at the hands of men. And immediately, one of the women kind of angrily corrected me and said, the number was more like 100%. And I was kind of dumbstruck. Could that be right? Did I get the statistic wrong? But every woman at that table agreed, and each one of them that they had been the victim of a male sexual assault and of male aggression. So I kind of felt put in my place, but I didn't really believe that what she was saying was true. So I, uh, as soon as I got home, I started Googling. And, you know, I, it did have something right, sort of. Um, according to the CDC in 2011, more than 31% of women in the United States said that they had been physically abused by an intimate partner at some point in their lives. Now, that doesn't include all of the other boundary crossings and molestations and rape, not at the hand of mm. an intimate partner. And in 2018, there was a national survey of 2,000 women, and 81% reported experiencing some form of sexual harassment and or assault in their lifetimes. And 51% of women reported that they have been touched or groped in unwanted ways. And when you think about that, I don't think those statistics take into account all of the uh, inappropriate comments, the catcalls, the ogling and leers, and subtle and not so subtle messages that are repeated from an early age that girls and women need to be more ladylike, less aggressive, less sensitive, sweeter, less bitchy. As um, Betty Davis Riley said, when a man gives his opinion, he's a man. And when a woman gives her opinion, she's a bitch. I think, you know, even in my response to this woman who angrily corrected me, I was supposed to be the expert in the room. And there's a way in which my sense as a man was kind of threatened the way she talked to me, which is why you know, I, I kind of cling on to the fact, well, yeah, something I got right here. You know, the other thing about this statistic is it doesn't take into consideration all of the women and men who protect themselves by denying or burying the memories of how their boundaries have been crossed or who identify with the aggressor and need to protect them. So my daughter, has been telling me for years that aggression toward women was far more routine than I acknowledged. And I think a part of me didn't want to believe her. It would have been unbearable to imagine that anyone, including especially me, might be treating my daughter, my wife, my female friends, my patients with anything less than kindness and respect. No doubt, 
that I too have been unwittingly influenced by a culture that for thousands of years has been teaching that women are less valuable than men, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. And this is something that's ingrained in all of us. So that dinner party changed my lens and awakened me to what my daughter had been trying to tell me. I've come to agree that the real statistic regarding women experiencing abusive male behavior is probably closer to 100%. And that every woman at that party had that experience and it sounded like a pretty dramatic way it was just poured me. And as a clinician, I've come to recognize that probably all of the people, or almost all the people who enter my office, certainly, I think all of the women I can think of have been victims of boundary violations and microaggressions. And that fact certainly colors whatever brings them to see me. A young woman that I know recently told me that her boss had given her a promotion and spoke about a salary increase. But then more than two months had passed and her paycheck had not reflected the promised raise. I said, how about just telling her how much you love the job and you hope the raise that you mentioned will be forthcoming, I asked. And she said, I can't do that. And anyway, I have enough. I don't really need the money. I'm doing fine. Do you think she would have given you the raise if you were a man, I asked. She thought about it and she said, yeah, probably. The last raise I got was a few years ago when a man joined the company who was doing the same work for more pay. So it's an issue of social justice, I said. You deserve that raise as much as a man would. And I've got to tell you, if I'd been the man, I, um, I, in that situation, I would have been all over my boss. But she said to me, oh, come on, look around you at all the social injustice in the world. I've been given so much, and this issue is nothing compared to everything else that's going on. It reminds me of one of my favorite James Baldwin quotes. He said, you've got to tell the world how to treat you. If the world tells you how you're going to be treated, you're in trouble. And I think about this young woman and how she didn't have the same sense of entitlement that I think most men would. And it's probably why the U.S. Department of Labor um, report that women in the United States get paid about 20% less than men for doing the same job. Though I, I think the way I just said it is, is a little wrong, that it's not just because women don't let the world know how they need to be treated. It's what, what men uh, come to expect in, in terms of how women deserve to be treated. And, uh, you know, even in by seeing it that way, it's tempting to blame the victim. You know, I think somehow we've been brainwashed into thinking that it's all right for women to accept less than what they deserve. I hope that that young woman finds a way to ask for what she deserves or demand it and feel that she has the power that most men feel that, that they have to ask for their needs to be met. That sense of feeling entitled to be valued. So um, men 
and women alike need to be more conscious of the ways that gender stereotypes deprive all of us of a kind of kindness and tolerance and fairness and productivity that we deserve. And without that, we are going to fall far short of what we could be as a civilization. Amen. So clearly, um, we need to have a six-hour podcast because there's so much for us to talk about based on what you just laid out on the table. I have many, many, many threads that I'd love to pull on. Okay. That you just that of of everything you list. So maybe we'll take it like piece by piece and see what we can do. Um, I also feel compelled to start with, given where you left off, that we are recording this on Sunday, November eighth, twenty twenty, having just elected our very first female vice president of the United mm-hmm. States of America ever. So that feels relevant. Yeah, it gets me choked up every time. It's kind of amazing. Especially after all we've been through over the last four years and the fear that that we're really moving back into a period where there's this oppressive male dominance. You know, I think about my own life. I think about ways in which I have felt oppressed by men and dominated by men, how frightened that, that has been and how it's left me with fear and anxiety of, of mm. what we can do and um, what a certain kind of aggressive man can, man can do. And probably has also left me the sense that, you know, I'm really different than that. But, you know, I think these are messages that are thousands of years old. These, these lessons are, are um, bred into us. And I think about how magnificent it is that we are changing think about how much better the world is when everybody's empowered. Yeah. I, I remember thinking over the last few years, four years of looking at these scenes in, in Washington, D.C., where repeatedly you would see these gatherings around the president, all white men. And it was just terrifying, especially given the way that those male stereotypes have damaged so many of us. I think these stories are integrated into all of us. One of the things you said was that, you know, with the raises that men are taught to take women for granted or to think that women are worthless, women are thought to think that too. We're taught to think that. I think this damages all of us. We are all victims of a system that has this kind of, these stories that place us in these hierarchies just because we may have some privilege in that hierarchy doesn't mean that we aren't damaged by it, I think. Yeah, and I think about ways in which it has been damaging to my relationship with Laura, that I'm so pleased that we can celebrate our partnership and it makes our partnership deeper and more real. Not that there isn't a voice in me that says, whoa, what are you doing? Sure going public with your your sexism and giving up the limelight for yourself, but a much stronger part of me feel really pleased connecting with my wife around this and admiring her strength. How wonderful to be married to somebody who says, I want to be acknowledged. It's such a beautiful story of 
sort of in our language of expanding your range of options of the performances that you've been scripted into, right? So she's stepping into like, I'm going to claim my space, right? right, And demand this. And you are stepping into by writing this article, by, by not just doing it, but by telling the story behind it, by stepping into a place of being willing to be vulnerable and be wrong, right? All of these things that the sort of male script is telling you not to be. Right. right. To be lower status, to be vulnerable, to be wrong, to say, oh, what well, mea culpa. Um, and my guess is, I, I know you haven't, I don't think you've put this out there yet, but my guess is that you're going to get all sorts of positive feedback and positive rewards for that, that we are starving collectively for exam- as much as we're looking for the example of Kamala Harris stepping into that leadership. We're looking for examples of men like Joe Biden and you to be vulnerable and empathic. And and there's this fear that there'll be a backlash that will be punished for being vulnerable. And yet the truth is that if you're vulnerable, people open their hearts to you. Absolutely. I got a, an email this morning Uh, from the woman who is officially my editor at the paper. And it came in just before the podcast began. Um, So she was one of the first people to read the article. And here's what she said. Just read the byline column. Love it. Makes people pause and think. Women too. So that they see how insidious this can be. Really great column. What she didn't do was she didn't CC Laura. Oh, look at that. (laughs) Even though the byline is now, now says it's coming from both of us. Was Laura CC'd when you sent it? Uh, Yes, she was. So that's something to correct right away. When you were telling the story, you said you called yourself out for prejudice. What I thought when you said that was, well, it's not exactly prejudice as much as privilege. And I don't know if that's right, but I'm curious to sort of unpack the relationship or the difference between that. What is just the privilege to not have to pay attention or not even notice versus some kind of prejudice of these people are better than these people, or I don't think she's worth it. I don't, it feels like I just you never had to think about it. like if anybody ever talked to you about it, whenever you were conscious, you were like, oh, of course I value these people as much. Yeah, well, what, what if I were a white man who said, well, I was born with the privilege of being a white man and I deserve to be in that position. And of course a black man doesn't deserve right. the, and the position that I have. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I, I'm not prejudiced. I just... yeah. See, that feels like a prejudice and it feels like that's not what you're saying. When you say like, I don't think that, I mean, I'm sure we all have bias. We all have prejudice, right? You know, we can take the IAT tests and we'll, from Harvard, right? The implicit association tests and we'll all have bias and prejudice. I'm just curious about in this instance, was there a prejudice that she didn't deserve it or wasn't as worthy of you or was it or that if a woman wouldn't is that is it that or is it 
simply like even a layer below that of so much privilege that we don't even think about it. And what's the relationship between the two? I guess that's what I'm curious about, how those two things intersect. Is that even a meaningful question? Maybe it's not. No, I think it's a really meaningful question, but I, I think it's, a, it's fascinating because for many of us, since the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement have been in our faces, many of us are more aware of our, of our privilege, our privilege that's been built on the backs of other people than we've ever been before. I'm certainly more aware of that. Mm -hmm. But embedded in that is the assumption that I deserve the privilege I've been given mm -hmm. because of my race, because of my education, because of my um, social status, and, um, and a fear that if that's messed with, that my very identity is going to be threatened. Yeah. Not only my identity, but my bank account. <laughs> and there are an awful lot of people who vote their bank accounts, as we just saw, right? I think, at least in their imagination. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I get that a lot of them think they're voting their bank accounts, but I think a lot of them are, are voting in the interest of maintaining their their privilege and position. Yes. And in fact, the real cost of this kind of government to all of us are enormous, both emotionally and, and economically. Yes, which brings me to another thought that I had, which is that ability to, I think you write about this too, our ability to hang on to stories about ourselves or the world that don't actually make any sense. Yeah, and that don't serve us. No, I don't know how you can possibly think that what we've been doing over the last four years is sustainable or good for anyone, right? Like I'm very happy, I personally am very happy for a lot of the people who didn't vote the way that I voted because I think their lives are going to be better. I'm happy that they lost because I think their lives will be better. I'm happy for them. I try to follow the thread and it seems so clear to me that the narrative that they've constructed falls apart immediately if you pull on one little bit of it. I'm guessing I have stories like that too <laughs> that I cling to. It's easier to see how other people are not reality-based than to see how we are not reality-based. When I saw uh, my views about this subject were not reality-based, it kind of shocked me. You know, yeah. and even though my daughter had been telling me the same thing for years, you don't get it. Every woman I know is regularly demeaned in her relationships with men and has been violated in one way or another. Couldn't get my mind around it. And as I said earlier, it's so disturbing that I don't want to look at it. And I think about people who think of themselves as evangelicals or highly religious people who embrace a, a, a president who lies and who gropes women and brags about it. And how does that fit with their religion and sense of ethics? And yet, I think if you ask them, they would say that they're highly ethical, spiritual people. 
I don't think I'm so different. We all have that dissociation and an ability to lie to ourselves. Ability to lie to ourselves. Yeah. I imagine that a lot of your work is about helping people navigate that. Right. Yeah, I think psychotherapy is about telling the truth and discovering what's true of especially about ourselves and our assumptions um, that isn't working for us. And you know, it's one of the reasons that I felt like the right thing for me to do as a psychiatrist was to tell this story publicly because I think it's really important for us all to stop and acknowledge our vulnerability and our prejudice and the ways in which we're not telling our the truth about our narratives to ourselves. Yeah. We started doing these story circles where we have people come together and just share their experiences, share their stories, uh, sometimes around topics that we pick ahead of time. Sometimes the group just surfaces a topic that they're curious about or wondering about in the moment. Some ways just because people are hungry for connection in this time that they're isolated from each other. And also as an antidote to a world in which we're bombarded with advice as a way of sort of sharing and exploring our own experiences and then giving ourselves advice or processing that without the sort of uh, mainlining of like, here's what you should do. It's such a wonderful way to be continually reminded about the power of story itself, right? To sort of externalize, oh, these are the stories in my head and to share them and hear other people's stories and be able to examine them sort of outside of our heads and look at them and say, oh, wow, what does that mean? The stories we tell ourselves are profoundly important to the way we experience the world and how we feel and how we relate to each other. I mean, for instance, my telling this story about my column and my relationship with Laura has opened my heart and it helps me to see myself different and my relationship different. And, and same for Laura, it draws us closer together. I bet. And telling true stories really opens oneself up to love. Yeah, I love that. I'm thinking about my marriage and my relationship and how right now during COVID, things have been great. We've been really getting along. And, you know, we went through sort of a hard patch. We found a great couples therapist. We did a bunch of stuff. But I've noticed like in the last few days, the plumbing broke. There was like a sewage block. Michael's been down in the basement for hours on end pumping suit. I mean, it's been stressful. Like that could be stressful. And I look back, I don't know, six months, a year. And I think we could have been fighting. Like, it's just, you know, like every little thing could have been a fight. And instead we've been having a wonderful time. And he, I think he's been feeling appreciated. I've been feeling really appreciative. I, you know, we, I, just the dynamic is completely different. And I really think that it's about the stories we're telling in our own heads about ourselves and about each other somehow through that process shifted that just the running narrative, sort of the ambient narrative 
in each of us and between us has shifted somehow. Yeah. Aren't we lucky people? You think about how there's this increase in, in domestic violence and increase in divorces in the setting of the pandemic and the isolation. And as a psychotherapist, a lot of what I do is help people to change the narrative. And in changing the narrative, they change their relationships. I know for, in my marriage, I think Laura has always kind of dreaded, and I've dreaded, what would it be like if I were at home every day? <laughs> she's at home every day, and she has the space to herself. You know, would I be making a mess, and would I be more demanding and um, want her attention when she's trying to work? And, and there was, I think, a little bit of tension when it started, but now we're telling ourselves the story that it's really nice that we get to have lunch together and nap together. And I don't know if, if this switch would have come around in, in my column if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Yeah. Stuck together. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems inevitable when you make such a dramatic shift in your environment that all of our relationships change. And the question is, how do they change? And for lots of people, it gets worse. And for lots of people, it gets better. And for all of us, I think it has to do with the narrative that we tell ourselves. Yeah. There's something that's happened here, for better or worse, that has made us have to confront some things. If nothing else, we can't keep avoiding some things that we've been able to avoid by being very busy, by being elsewhere, by being distracted. My most recent column is called Strategies for Pandemic Helplessness. And I'm seeing a pandemic of people feeling trapped, people feeling helpless up until now about the politics and about where America is going about the environment, about the economy, about race relations, and about being trapped inside and not being able to control the spread of this virus. You know, I think that sense of being impotent and not knowing what to do leads us to being really angry a lot of the time. I think about all the people who shouted at each other about masks, this emblem of tribal identity and how they see themselves as violated and enraged and hostile. I hear about it all the time in my practice about people feeling angry and about people feeling like they're the victims of anger. The pandemic has, has really changed our psyches, our, our sense of well-being. You know, the um, um, Americans are in more psychological distress than we ever been. People are less happy than they have been in the 50 years since that measure has started being followed. Yeah. So in June, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, found that 40% of Americans were struggling with mental health issues or a substance abuse problem. And that's amazing. Two out of five. 40%. 40%. Those are people who are dealing with serious mental health issues or addiction problems. Prescriptions for benzodiazepines, like Valium or Xanax, way up. Alcohol consumption, way up. Overdoses, way up. Uh, and 
so much of it, I, I think, is a response to feeling overwhelmed and trapped and frightened. And um, we're a, a species or a community with just huge emotional burden right now. Yeah. So my guess is that at this point, our listeners might be saying, Kat, you've got an expert here. You have to ask, what, what do we do about that? So you help your, par- your patients change their narrative. Well, you know, you, you can, could read my article that has a lot of suggestions. And as a therapist, I think often what we do is we help people to understand the roots of their sense of being trapped, helpless, the anger that people are experiencing, and then help them find ways of helping themselves, the parts of themselves that feel trapped or helpless or disenfranchised or humiliated. And of course, just telling the story as we're doing now is liberating. But in my last article, I tried not to write about that, strategies for pandemic helplessness, because I think it's it's really easy to focus on the negative emotions, to focus on the pain. And it's really useful, especially if you find ways to relieve it and unburden the shame, the guilt, the anger. But what we're not as good at doing as psychotherapists is helping people focus on the positive emotions, the healing emotions. Wise elder in the field of psychiatrists psychiatry named George Valent, who studied a cohort of Harvard students over the last 50 years of their lives, or must be more than that now. And he found that there are eight emotions that are really healing to us. And those emotions are love, hope, joy, forgiveness, compassion, trust, gratitude, and awe. So when I wrote about strategies for pandemic helplessness, I tried to focus on those emotions rather than dwelling on just the painful emotions. And it might be different than what I would do as a psychiatrist or as a psychotherapist than what I was trying to do in my article. But my article, I wanted to give people strategies for how to feel better. And one of the most important things that I've learned in the last years, there's a part of the brain called the default mode network. And we can see it on different kinds of brain scans when it's active. And it's where we go to by default. We go to a place where we're worried, thinking about the election, feeling, um, what are are we going to do about the future? How am I doing on this podcast? Uh, Am I making sense? Um, Are people going to be disturbed by my article, or have I made myself too vulnerable? It's where the human mind goes to by default. And there's this other network in the brain, which is kind of on the other side of of the cortex, called the task-positive network. And when one is active, the other is inactive. So you can't both be in task-positive network and default mode network the same time. So if you do something, if you go get into a flow activity, it helps 
that feeling of despair and helplessness because you're getting out of the default mode. Nice. So exercising, cooking, reading a book, playing a game of cards, you know, even things that may not be ultimately so good, like playing computer games or eating something or cooking something. Oh, that's a pretty good thing. Um, gets you away from that feeling of despair. You know, something else that I think is really crucial is avoiding the news when you feel <sighs> And these are all things I've written articles about. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, especially visual news is dangerous because the visual cortex is something like two million years old. And the reasoning cortex is a couple hundred thousand years old. So the part of our brain that, that experiences what we see visually as immediate and threatening danger is really well-tuned. So when I see somebody being bullied on TV or, you know, in in the riots, someone being, being attacked by somebody else or by police, or to watch what happened to George Floyd over and over again, there's this way in which we experience this immediate threat and danger. And then we play it over and over to ourselves in our minds. So I, think it's really important to limit how much news we watch but also how much we read and i know personally it's really helped me very uh, over the last years to limit how many news articles disturbing news articles i'll read in a day and i i never watch the news there have been a couple of great articles for other strategies in the new york times in the last months there's there's one called all walking and what all walking is about is it's about going out into nature and making a point of being very mindful and experiencing awe in what surrounds us. And it's not hard to do. I mean, you look at a leaf or an insect or a flower or listen to the wind or uh, look at the stars. You really think about it. There's this rush of awe. And awe is a really healing emotion. Another great article in the Times recently was about laughter as healing uh, for psychological or physical distress. It really helps. Laughter is so liberating from helplessness. So, you know, when I turn on Stephen Colbert, not only do I feel less alone in what I, but the laughter is healing. Yeah. Absolutely. He had a wonderful, I don't know if you've seen it, there was a wonderful piece that he did this week. And his first part was more serious than I think he's ever been. And he talked about the attack on our democracy and implored Republicans to take up a stand now and, and applaud the conclusion to this presidential race. And then he went into one of his standard monologues and he showed a clip that I just loved of this very calm, kind of portly man who was running the election recount and he was giving a news conference. And behind him appeared this enraged man who said that the election was being stolen and he had his his mask halfway down his his face and <laughs> And he was screaming at the camera about the injustice and 
and security guard got in between him and the man giving the news conference, but nobody stopped him. And eventually he just stopped yelling and he was accompanied off the stage, but no one tried to force him off the stage. And then the man giving the news conference said, and as I was saying, <sighs> back to reporting on the election results. And not only was it incredibly funny, it was so poignant because it's what we all have to do. We all need to take a deep breath and not let that, those parts of ourselves that are so quick to get defensive and take them. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And my dogs are uh, also barking their approval. <laughs> yeah. It, I love the image and what you just said of, of the folks on the stage being the voices inside of our heads, the many voices. And we have the one little voice that's like, rah, 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 and the other voice, it's like, I'm going to take a deep breath and pause. Yeah. And just let him let that other voice wear itself out. I'm not going to try to shut it up. I'm just going to like turn down the volume a little bit, keep it back. So it doesn't hurt anyone. It'll get tired. Yeah. You know, that's the nature of the human psyche is that when there's a part of us that, is going to just do whatever it takes and throw a fit or throw an object or yell at somebody that there's another part of us that says, whoa, what are you thinking? Don't do that. No. You can't publish that article. Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think about Dax Shepard. Do you know who that is? Kristen Bell's husband. He's a an actor and a celebrity and he has uh, a podcast that is even more successful than our podcast, if you can imagine. It's called uh, Armchair Expert. I think it might be the most popular podcast that exists at the moment, but he does a bunch of interviews. And he uh, is a self-proclaimed addict who had, I want to say, 14, 16, 18 years of sobriety, something like that, that he was very proud of. And a month or so ago, did an episode where he admitted that he'd had a relapse originally triggered by an injury that he'd had. And he'd been taking some prescription painkillers and over a period of a couple of months, it sort of gotten out of control and started to abuse it. And he did an episode where he said, look, I just have to, I'm, I just have to come clean and I have to let you know. And I couldn't, I, I talk about this publicly and I couldn't just let everybody know that think that I was, you know, had my 18 years when I knew I had seven days. I think that's what he named the episode, Seven Days. And he told the story of how the last couple of months had been going and how his co-host had been like, what's up with you? And how he'd been lying to her and lying to his wife and how bad he felt because his wife is Kristen Bell. And he knew now she was going to be getting all this heat from the press and, and how scared he was about disclosing. And then the next week he came back and was just like, I can't believe the kind of support, you know, that he just was overwhelmed with positive feedback and support. So I'm sure you will also get that kind of positive feedback. It's so healing when you expose the thing that you're ashamed of and the world responds positively. Absolutely. And shame is that feeling you get when you think there's something wrong with you and the world sees it you'll be abandoned. Yeah, you know, I, I do as as we have this and you you know, we've sort of had this part of the conversation a couple of times and every time I do it, I, I have this little niggling thought in the back of my head, which is this sort of competence, likability 
dilemma that women have. Um, I'm not going to be able to quote the study right now. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes, but where there's this um, inverse correlation for women between being seen as competent and being seen as likable. Mm. So that we're always sort of having to play that game of like balancing one against the other. Like, so I can be seen as a powerful leader who really knows my stuff, but then sometimes I'm seen as a bitch or hard or not friendly, or I can be seen as friendly and likable, but then I'm seen as less competent where it's correlated for men. It's inversely correlated for women. Wow. So I think a little bit, it just feels like I have to sort of name that too, as we're talking about it, that for Laura, it's a little more of a dilemma to sort of step into that counter stereotype, right? When she says like, Hey, you know, I'm going to speak up. It's she's sort of risking that, oh, she's going to seem not likable, you know, especially as a spouse, right? Are you supposed to support your man? You know, where I think for you, you're just going to make yourself seem more credible and, you know, oh, wow, see what a great sensitive psychiatrist he is and what a wonderful man he is. And doesn't that, right? Because those things will go together for you and for her, at least traditionally, I, I think there's some newer studies that are coming out that are saying that's closing a little bit, but. That's fascinating. Maybe you should interview her for your podcast. I would love to interview her for my podcast. And it doesn't just have to be about her relationship to your story. She can come talk about whatever she wants. <laughs> Sounds like she has another project that she's working on. Her, her other project. I don't know if she would talk about it. Some writers think that talking about it deflates the. That's- I, you know, what I know about Laura is that she is a fascinating, very, very accomplished person. And I'm sure we could find lots of things to talk about. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about before we end that you would like to add into the mix? About a hundred or 200. Right. We'll have to have you back. We haven't yet told everybody, although I might have, I might mention it at the beginning. Who knows that we are cousins. Yeah. I remember reading a book once, a thriller, and seeing your name in it and going like, oh, that's my cousin's name, and later finding out that you're friends with the author. So yeah. like you, I was like, I noticed that. I didn't know that. It's yeah. Like we, um, be doing this with my cousin. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's years and years of podcast fodder there just talking about our families and growing up and the stories and labels that we had in our families. Narratives that we told ourselves and each other and our families about who we were as people. Some of them were so dead wrong. I told a story about you in a a live storytelling show that we did. So I'll have to send it to you. I'd love that. Thank you for being here. We will link to your article. So if anybody wants to subscribe, they can do that. Great. Well, uh, Thanks, Kat. This was really fun. What strikes me about the conversation is this theme about the stories that we make up about ourselves and how real they feel, Mm -hmm. how complete they feel, how, um, how, how solid they feel. And yet they're none of those things. Right? I told this story about my cousin at a storytelling show, which was all about my 
story about myself and my story about him. And I was 12 and he was you know, 20 or I was 10 and he was 18. And, you know, and now we're however ever old we are, we're completely different people. And I yeah. think some of those stories are still in our brains and some of them are probably very different that we tell ourselves and we think we know ourselves. And then we hear stories like the one Charlie shared with us about these huge blind spots we have. It's really a fascinating exploration, isn't it? Yeah, no, it, it really is. And I, you know, thinking about, I was having a conversation with my family just um, this past week and we were talking about what were our, our earliest memories? What were the, you know, the, the ones, the earliest ones we could recall. And, and we talked about how it was sort of this struggle to recognize is this something I'm actually remembering or is this something that either I've just kind of pieced together through the years of hearing things or is it memories that uh, that I heard from someone else that I'm, you know, turning into uh, memories of my own. Um, the, my mother-in-law has a story about my husband who, when he was younger, was saying that he would he would recall these these memories as if they were his. And she would be like, you weren't you weren't even born yet like you, were, you weren't there yet so you're not you're not remembering that but that is um but it just becomes such a part of the stories we tell and who we are yeah yeah it's it could be daunting you know as we start to grow and break out of assumptions and scripts but there's also something freeing in this project that we're undertaking about daring to be human to recognize that they're just stories, right? The, the sort of duality of how tenacious mm -hmm. they are. And, but at the same time, really, they're just stories. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, what I love about that and what I love about improv is sort of living in that paradoxical space where it is something that is so powerful, but also so malleable in that way. And like living in that world. Well, we would love to hear from you, your stories that maybe have been with you and maybe cracked open or been rewritten a little bit during these weird, strange times. Mm -hmm. Uh, and anything else you'd like to share with us that was spurred by this conversation that we had? Any other conversations you'd like us to have? Any people that you would love to hear from that you think it would be nice for us to talk to and hear Dare to be Human stories from? Please be in touch. The way, best way to get in touch with us is hello at daretobehumanpodcast.com. Or how else? Uh, you can like and subscribe and review us and 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 we will look there and we will find you and we will acknowledge you and applaud you and make you honorary cousins of ours that's right there's always room for more cousins yes all right have fun have a good week make nice stories 